All right, 12.30, at least by my watch. This one's tuned to uh, divine standard time, so <laughs> it's, it's what time it is in heaven, obviously, clear. <clears throat> We're gonna get started today. So we are continuing this section of numbers. We're in chapter four, and chapter four is the second half. Chapter three and four kind of function together because God is now in this section ordering the Levites. He's, he's numbered the camps. We've seen over this time, and, it, and it's important to always reemphasize this because we read through a chapter and then we go a week and don't even look at it again and don't even think about it again if we're honest. And then we come back a week later. Well, a week hasn't passed between those sections in the text. It's the same, we're right there. So that's why we do in this study a lot of review because it's so important to keep the overall picture of everything in view. That's, Christians today suffer from a lack of just knowing the biblical narrative and the overall picture of what's going on in Scripture. That's just, that plagues us as a people. And it doesn't matter how many memory verses you know, and it doesn't matter how many you can recite, how many studies by this popular author or that popular author, if you don't know the basic biblical story, then you're, you're, you're working at a deficit spiritually. Because that's how God gave it to us. You know, He gave it to us in a form for a reason. And it's a reason that served His people for, uh, since the time of this text, 3,400 years, give or take. Um, and so it's really, you know, I want to harp on that because it's the more and more I see how Christians are in the world, how we interact, how we learn, how we grow, how we do ministry, that seems to be the one piece that I time and time again think is missing from the, the whole concept of discipleship, is knowing the story. Not the four spiritual laws, not the Romans road, not even the Ten Commandments, but the story, the narrative, the meta-narrative of God and His relationship to all of creation, and where we fit in that story. That to me, the, the, the older I get, <clears throat> is the just over and over and over that keeps resurfacing is do we know God's story and do we know where we are in that story and too often the answer to that is no so that's what this Bible study that's what this this series that we've been doing now for years is is all geared towards it's it's geared towards immersing you all in the story of Israel and traveling along with them you know this year we're, we're in numbers in the wild literally in the wild is what the book means in Hebrew and the title and that's what we are we're in the wild you, you want to be with Israel and at this point Israel remember out of slavery out of chaos they're being brought into order they're being brought into a nation or to become a nation and more particularly to become an army rather than fleeing from armies as they had just done the previous year now they are becoming an army from whom others will flee because they are going to be God's judgment on these particular peoples called the Canaanites. Not on Gentiles overall, but on the particular people that God is sending them to drive out of the land. So it's, it's always important to keep these big themes in mind because that way when we get bogged down in the specifics, we can reorient ourselves and see where we are. So if a particular passage comes up and it's weird or it's boring or you're just like, I don't see the point, you can step back from it and go, okay, wait a minute, here's where I am. I'm in the wilderness. 
I'm, I'm, I'm part of the people of God. We're being reoriented. We're being re- renewed and transformed. The wilderness is a place of transformation and preparation in the Bible. It's, God describes it, it's, it's paradox, because the wilderness is sometimes described as a place of hardship, you know, a place of struggle, being in the wilderness. We even say it today in Christian, you know, when we get together and speak Christianese, oh, I'm having some desert time, brother, pray for me. What does that really mean? We're in Charlotte. There's no desert for a thousand miles from here. Well, what it means is I am kind of wandering right now. I don't know what my purpose necessarily is. Uh, specifically, I don't know where my job is going to lead me. I don't know what my health is doing and, and the struggles that I'm facing. I don't know what's going on with my family. My relationship seems to have dissipated. All of these things. So we say we're in the wilderness. Well, the wilderness time is never something that you can enjoy at the time. It's almost always impossible to enjoy being in the wilderness. If you could enjoy it, that wouldn't be the wilderness. That's the irony of it. But almost always, it's a time that you look back in hindsight and you go, that was when I was being the most prepared. That was when I was being um, molded and shaped into the person that God is calling me to be. And so the whole book of Numbers, that's where we are with Israel, in the wilderness. And so it's, it's for centuries has provided a needed point of orientation for God's people in both covenants. The Israelites in the exile would read Numbers and they would see themselves once again in exile, awaiting the promises to enter the land, being punished for their disobedience in the wilderness outside of God's land. And then in the New Covenant believers, we looked the first week how the New Testament uses the imagery from the book of Numbers many places to describe where we as New Covenant believers are. God's New Covenant has arrived. He's brought us out of the clutches of Pharaoh, but the real Pharaoh, the one who animates Pharaoh, sin itself. And He's given us a New Covenant. He's, he's called us and oriented us as a new people around His Messiah, His new Moses, Israel, Jesus Himself. And, but yet... We're not in the promised land yet. We're not, we haven't crossed the Jordan, which is how that became a metaphor for death, by the way. You know, crossing the Jordan became a metaphor of when I die. Well, it comes from numbers because numbers in Deuteronomy was when Israel was outside of the promised land, looking in, going to cross the Jordan into the promised land. That's where that comes from. So this is how even the book of Numbers has been a guide for new covenant believers. We the now and the not yet, redeemed from slavery, but looking at not into the land where we're called yet. And so that's how the book itself serves. So when we go through the book, then we see these passages, we have to look at it on two levels. Historically, God was orienting Israel to be a nation, to be an army, to be a people. Theologically, He was continuing to teach them the lessons that He had been teaching them ever since Exodus about who He is and His purposes for them, and the type of deity that He is, and how He is like the other gods in some ways, but vastly unlike the gods in other ways. And giving them that balance, orienting them to who this God is that they've only heard about for 400 years, and now they've seen face to face in the smoke, in the fire, in the clouds of Mount Sinai, and now the tabernacle itself, which is the little Mount Sinai that goes with them. So, All of that then is part of what we have to take in as we're reading these sections, which if read by itself could seem very mundane, very pointless. What's the point? Well, in the wilderness, that's a time when priorities get 
set. That's a time when organization takes place. That's a time when you thought you were going to go and do this one thing, and then God pulls you into the wilderness and says, actually, I'm preparing you for something, and it's even better, but it's different, and it may be harder, and it may be scarier. Uh, and so it involves this preparation time. You know, Jesus didn't just show up on the scene and start doing ministry. He, he went, the first thing he did after his baptism, just like Israel, the people, first thing he did after he passed through the waters was he went into the wilderness. He went into the wild for 40 days, which was directly reflective of them being punished in the wilderness for 40 years because of the 40 days that the spies spent in the promised land and then rejected it. But we haven't gotten there yet, so that's just a preview of things to come. But we're still in the preparation part, and we're in chapter 4. Chapter 3, God had set the Levites apart and said, Hey, Levites, you're my royal guard. You're going to protect the tabernacle from your fellow Israelites. They're going to be fighting the battles against the Canaanites and the armies who come at us. You're going to be fighting for my holiness against them should they try to encroach upon me. Because God is always good, but like Aslan, He's never safe. Okay, Narnia reference, if those of you have never read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, go read it. You deserve to. Uh, so what God's doing is, is He's saying, this is the type of God I am. I'm in your midst. I'm fighting the battle. I'm on your side, but I'm not your God. In other words, I'm your God, but I'm not your God. You don't own me. You don't control me. I don't do things based on whether you say the right incantations or offer the right sacrifices. I have my will. You are following my will, not vice versa. And of course, that's the modern evangelical heresy is we flip it on its head and God has a special plan for my life. And God is in my pocket. Jesus is my homeboy. You know, God has my, what, my purpose-driven life. You know, all of this stuff, my best life now. And what God is saying through Numbers and through all of the books of Scripture when we read it closely is, no, 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 no. Your job is not to find uh, my purpose for your life. Your job is to find your purpose in my plan for this world. And that's even better than anything you can imagine. So he set the Levites apart. And he said, you are my priests. You represent me before the people. You, you, you are the buffer. You are the go-between, the layer of insulation between my holiness, which is like a blast furnace in its intensity, and the common sinfulness of even the Israelites, who themselves are to be the go-between between the nations and my presence. So we talked about last week, layers and layers of um, concentric holiness is what we see in Israel. You've got the nations who are profane and, and, and godless and, and don't know the Lord and are going to and fro with, with occasional hints and, and, and glimpses of goodness sprinkled in. So there are people like Melchizedek and others who pop on the scene every now and then who somehow have knowledge of God. But overall, the picture of the Gentile world is one of, of groping and reaching and struggling and turning away from God rather than embracing and creating their own gods and all of this. So between that and God, you have Israel, who's called to be the kingdom of priests. And then within Israel itself, between the normal everyday Israelites who themselves share in the humanity of the rest of the world, you have the Levites and the priests who stand between that which is the most holy, which is God Himself, and the Israelites who themselves stand between God's presence 
and the wider people. So you have to see this concentric rings of how God set up. It's the reason that the tabernacle itself is made up of concentric rings of holiness. There are patterns, there are things that God is doing all throughout that have theological significance. So in chapter 4 then, he's going to break down the Levites now by their clans. There's four clan, basically, groupings of Levites. There are the priests, who are Aaron's family, sons of Aaron. And then there are the Kohathites, uh, the Gershonites, and the Merarites. So each of those three will have their own job and role. So chapter 4 says, The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, Among the Levites, take a census of the Kohathites by their clans and their ancestral houses, men from 30 years old to 50 years old, everyone who is qualified to do work at the tent of meeting. This now is a census, not of the firstborn, which is a tribal census. This is a census of workers. This is a calling up of the troops, and particularly the special ops, so to speak. These are the ones who are going to have roles. And so the, the people that are numbered here are the adult males aged 30 to 50. These were your working years among the people of God. You became a priest, and later it would be in some things you could do in the temple at 25 years. Uh, they kind of bumped it down to 25 years was the younger end. But by 50, it was like a hard stop. 50 is retirement. Now we think 50, I mean 50 for me, that's like 12 years from now. That's not a big gap of time. But in the ancient world, your lifespan wasn't always that long. So 50 was kind of the golden years once we're getting into this age in Israel's time period. I'm just a kid. I'm just a kid. But in the ancient Near East of the second millennium, I'm getting up there, well past middle age. Um, the point being that there was a time, a window of which God had his workers could serve in the tabernacle. Now, why is God, um, you know, is he an age discriminator? Well, no, not for the sake of age, but for the sake of what the job is. This is this is work that they're called to do and not symbolic work, not theological work, but but actual work. So he goes on to say the service of the Kohathites at the tent of meeting concerns the most holy objects. Whenever the camp is about to move on. Aaron and his sons are to go in. Now Aaron, the priests, just the priests, go in, take down the screening veil, and cover the Ark of the Testimony with it. So that veil that separates it, separates the, the, the world from the Holy of Holies, that veil that's the divider that symbolized the, the gateway entrance to the Garden of Eden with the angel with the flaming sword in his hand. And in this case, that veil has a, the cherubim with swords in there woven into it. So it's, it's the symbol of the separation. They take that down, and cover the ark with it. So that it's still, even when they're on the move, it is the separation between God's holiness and the normal everyday world. And that's the job that only the priests could do. Not the Kohathites, not the Merarites, not the Gershonites. Only Aaron and his sons could do that job. They're to spread a blue cloth over the table of presents and place the plates and cups on it as well as the bowls and pitchers for the drink offering. The regular bread offering, that's the bread that's of the presence, is to be on it. They're to spread a scarlet cloth over them, cover them with a covering made of, and this word gets translated as manatee skins, porpoise skins, um, sea cow hides. I don't even know what King James does, but something like that. It's, it's a word, it could mean those things. It could just mean fine leather, like waterproof. Uh, so just whatever this is, this covers that to keep it safe. Uh, and insert the poles into the tables. They're to take a blue cloth and cover the lampstand used for light with its lamps and snuffers and firepans, as well as its jars of oil by which they service it. Then they must place it with all its utensils inside a covering made of this leather stuff and put them on the carrying frame. 
They're to spread a blue cloth over the gold altar, cover it with a covering made of this leather, and insert its poles. They're to take all the serving utensils they use in the sanctuary, place them in a blue cloth, cover them with a covering made of this leather, and put them on a carrying frame. They're to remove the ashes from the bronze altar, that's the thing outside where the sacrifices are, spread a purple cloth over it, and place all the equipment on it that they use in serving it. Fire pans, meat forks, shovels, basins, all the equipment of the altar, they're to spread a covering made of this leather over it and insert its poles. Aaron and his sons are to finish covering the holy objects and all their equipment whenever the camp is to move on. The Kohathites will come and carry them but they are not to touch the holy objects, or they will die. These are the transportation duties of the Kohathites regarding the tent of meeting. Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, has oversight of the lamp oil, the fragrant incense, the daily grain offering, the anointing oil. He has oversight of the entire tabernacle and everything in it, the holy objects and all their utensils. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, Do not allow the Kohathite tribes to be wiped out from the Levites. Do this for them so that they may live and not die when they come near the most holy objects. Aaron and his sons are to go in and assign each man his task and transportation duty. The Kohathites are not to go in and look at the holy objects, even for a moment, or they will die. And that phrase, even for a moment, in Hebrew literally is even a swallow meaning the time it takes to swallow. That, that was the idiom for just, like we say the blink of an eye, like that's our method of saying something that happens fast. In Hebrew, it's the time it takes to swallow. So God is, is saying here, so this whole section, this is what the Kohathites are supposed to do. All of the direction in, in this are aimed at Aaron and his sons. Aaron and his sons, the priests. God's saying, here's, here's your role. The Kohathites, this group of Levites, their job is to carry all of this stuff. But the problem is, they're, they're not ritually holy. They have not been consecrated as priests. Priests stand between the holiness and the, sacred, uh, the profane. And so, if they just go up and start moving stuff, the holy, my holiness will consume them. So God is putting in place, so here's how we're going to do it, so nobody has to compromise anything. My holiness will stay uh, as a fearsome reminder of the unpredictability that, that, remember, the God in their midst is not the God who just winks and smiles. He's not the cosmic grandpa. He's not the Santa Claus God. He is the God of fire. He is the God who parted the Red Sea. He's the God who struck dead all the firstborn of Egypt. He is the mighty God of all the cosmos. This is ingrained in this section. Is I, I, I love you. I'm your sovereign God. I'm not your buddy. We're not on the same playing field here. And again, it's a lesson that we as Christians on this side of grace, on this side of the new covenant, when the veil has been torn and we can approach the throne with confidence and boldness, for us it doesn't seem like that confident and boldness anymore because we're used to it. We've lived our whole lives being able to approach God directly through prayer. So that's when we have to take a step back on the other side of the cross and see what it was like for the Israelites. This is how they know God. And the God that they know is like the, 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 the reactor core of a nuclear power plant. I mean, it is, it is like you got to be insulated to deal with this. It can do great things. It can power an entire nation. You know, it can, it can, it can send rockets into space. It can keep our fires burning. It can keep our country. It, nuclear power is a great thing, but not if you're not shielded and walk into the core. It will destroy you. And that's the image kind of of what God's putting in his people's minds is that reverent fear of him. So the priests then, their job, God says, hey, 
Aaron's sons, and Eliezer, you're going to head it up. You're the high priest after Aaron, so you're going to head this up. Your job is to make sure your roadies, the people that are doing the roadie crew duties, they're setting up your show in location after location, make sure they don't die. That's, the, that's what God tells the priest. Your job, make sure they don't die. They're going to carry this stuff around. If they die, it's your fault. Because you did not protect my holiness. You did not cover my holiness. You did not. You, you played fast and loose with my things. Later, this will happen to a guy in the Old Testament. They'll, they'll be bringing the Ark of the Covenant back after it had been captured. And it was in a guy's house among the Philistines for a long time. And people were just like, oh, there's the Ark. Cool. Not Israel, but other people. And then when Israel finally recaptured it and was celebrating and they were going to bring it back, completely ignored all of these regulations brought it back on the back of a donkey cart, jostling along the road. One of the guys reaches, oh, it's going to fall. Let me grab it. Bam, drops dead. And that was God's way of saying, hey, I'm the same God. And I didn't punish the Philistines because they were not my covenant people. They did not have the regulations of how to handle the ark. You do. And I hold you to a higher standard. So God's telling the priest, this is your job. Make sure they don't die. Make sure my holiness is the utmost priority among things that are guarded and you know some people will start to say well that's so mean you know that's very stern that's very harsh all kids say that about parents when parents give them commands that they don't understand when you tell your kid to not to do something if you do that again I'm gonna spank you you know and they do it again and you know why you're telling them not to do it but they don't they're four they don't know what's going on they just know that they're being bad and they think it's funny and they keep doing it and eventually, what do you do? Well, if you're my mom, you take the wooden spoon and you pop them on the butt. If you're my dad, you take the belt. Either way, whichever one works. And they hate you at the time. And they think, I'm going to run away. You're so mean. You know, every kid says that. I'm going to run away. You're mean. And then 10, 15, 20 years pass, and then they grow up, and then they look back and they go, I would have spanked me too. <laughs> like, I would have done probably worse to my child if he had done that. But that's kind of where we are. We have to keep that in mind. Like, yeah, the consequences are dire. And yes, God is taking life. But God is the one who gave life. So if anyone can take life as a punishment, only God can do that justifiably without having to explain himself. And that's something that just some people are going to bristle at that and it won't satisfy him. If you're not a believer, if you're not in covenant with God, you won't buy that answer. And you'll say, well, that's why I don't believe, and you can keep your desert-dwelling, angry, bloodthirsty God, and blah, 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 whatever. That's fine. Parents that see another parent discipline their kid, and they don't know what the kid did, and they don't know the parent's motives, they may look at the parent and go, oh, you're a child abuser, you're spanking your kid, you're so mean, blah, blah, blah. Maybe. But the parent, if it's a good parent, they'll know why they're doing it, and the child eventually will know why the parent did it as well, because they have that family relationship. There's an inside knowledge that the person on the outside will never understand. And we can, just, we can leave it at that. I don't, I don't have to justify God's ways in every instance to somebody outside of the family of God. I can say to those of you who are in the family of God, know that this is how He's acted amongst His people and there's reasons for it. And as we immerse ourselves in the story of Israel, we see those reasons and we start to understand the discipline of God and we start to see how it all fits together on a grand cosmic scale. But until then, if we just open this up and read it and then type it on a chat room online, like, this is why God's mean, you know, that's, that's never going to get into the message of the text. It'll always just be a, a buffer that keeps people away. So, regardless, because we're running out of time, let's uh, go on and see the other three. Um, 
Verse 21, the Lord spoke to Moses, take a census of the Gershonites also by their ancestral houses and clans. Register men from 30 years old to 50 years old, everyone who is qualified to perform service to do work at the tent of meeting. This is the service of the Gershonite clans regarding work and transportation duties. They're to transport the tabernacle curtains, the tent of meeting with its covering, and the covering made of this special leather on top of it. The screen for the entrance to the tent of meeting, the hangings of the courtyard, the screen for the entrance of the gate of the courtyard that surrounds the tabernacle and the altar, along with their ropes and all the equipment for their service. They will carry out everything that needs to be done with these items. All the service of the Gershonites, all their transportation duties, all their other work is to be done at the command of Aaron and his sons. You are to assign it to them all that they are responsible to carry. This is the service of the Gershonite clans at the tent of meeting, and their duties will be under the direction of Ithamar, son of Aaron, the priest. So Eliezer, one of the priest's sons. Uh, Holman, Christian Standard. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not reading an IV. Yeah. <clears throat> <laughs> yeah, I have my backup Bible. My uh, big one was uh, left at home, so this is my backup. You know, I always carry a backup, you know, I always carry a spare, just like a car. Um, it's not quite as big or as durable as the other one, but it'll get the job done. The point is, so now the second grouping of the Levites come, and they're under the service of Ithamar. So Eliezer's watching over the Kohathites, making sure that, that the priests wrap everything tight, secure things, then that the Kohathites load them and carry them. Now, Ithamar, the other son of Aaron, the priest, is watching over the Gershonites. They've got to load the frames. They're carrying the truss and the scaffolding and all that kind of stuff. If you want to keep the concert analogy going. So he's watching over them. That's their duty. Now we see why they have to be 30 to 50 years of age. They're lifting things. They're lifting heavy poles, beams, metal, you know, bronze bases, silver bases, all that kind of stuff. This is heavy, heavy work. And so God is, is saying, I want the youngest and the strong, not the youngest, I want the, the, most mature, the balance of maturity and durability in this work, 30 to 50. Because remember, you don't become an adult at 30 in ancient Israel. You become an adult way earlier than that. So by the time you're 30, most Israelites would have had a chance to be married and have children, and some of their children might even be getting up there in age. So there is a maturity factor to this ministry service. It's not just, oh, you're, you're, you're an 18-year-old young buck and you're strong and ready to go. Come on, grab this holiness you know, thing that's, that's symbolic of all of God's holiness and throw it on that cart because you're strong and you're able-bodied. It wasn't like that. There's a seasoning aspect that has to happen too. All right? So you've got to be in the prime of life but not in that point where you're just an idiot, <laughs> which is <laughs> we've all especially guys, we've all been there, you know, from like 18 to 30, you're pretty much an idiot. And so after that time, then is when God says you're ready to serve me. I don't know if that's how it was in Israel, but. Uh, so now, last section, verse 29. As for the Merorites, you're to register them by their clans and their ancestral houses. Register men from 30 years old to 50 years old. Everyone who is qualified to do work of the tent of meeting. This is what they're responsible to carry as the whole of their service at the tent of meeting. The supporters of the tabernacle with its crossbars, posts, and bases. The posts of the surrounding courtyard with their bases, tent pegs, and ropes, including all their equipment and all the work related to them. You are to assign by name the items that they are responsible to carry. There's a difference here in some translations. Some says you are to assign items by name, meaning the name of each item. Like, you guys carry this item. You guys carry... Other translations and scholars say, no, 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 it's you're to assign the people by name. So you're 
Joe, this is what Joe carries. You're Bob, this is what Bob carries. Like down to the name, everyone has their job. So again, like last week we talked about, if you see a big elaborate concert being set up, the roadies all know their spot. You carry the pipe, put it here, then pick up this thing, put it there. Don't load this thing before you load that thing because then it'll create chaos. Like there's this smooth going organization and that's what God is doing here with Israel. So this is the service of the Merarite clans regarding all their work at the tent of meeting under the direction of Ithamar, son of Aaron the priest. Verse 34, so Moses, Aaron, and the leaders of the community registered the Kohathites by their clans and ancestral houses. Men from 30 years old to 50 years old, everyone who was qualified for work at the tent of meeting. The men registered by their clans numbered 2,750 or 2 elephs 750. These were the registered men of the Kohathite clans, everyone who could serve at the tent of meeting. Moses and Aaron registered them at the command through God's command through Moses. The Gershonites were registered by their clans and ancestral houses, men from 30 years old to 50 years old, everyone who was qualified for work at the tent of meeting. The men registered by their clans and their ancestral houses numbered to LF 630. These were the registered men of the Gershonite clans. At the Lord's command, Moses and Aaron registered everyone who could serve at the tent of meeting. The men of the Merarite clans were registered by their clans and their ancestral houses, those from 30 years old to 50 years old, everyone who was qualified for work at the tent of meeting. The men registered by their clans numbered 3LF200. These were the registered men of the Merarite clans. Moses and Aaron registered them at the Lord's command through Moses. Moses, Aaron, and the leaders of Israel registered all the Levites by their clans, their ancestral houses, from 30 years old to 50 years old. Everyone who was qualified to do the work of serving at the tent of meeting and transporting it. Their registered men numbered 8LF580. At the Lord's command, they registered under the direction of Moses, each one according to his work, his transportation duty, his assignment was as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, all of the work has been divvied up. All of the tribes know where they're to camp. All of the Levite groups know what they're to carry and transport. All of the priests and the Levites know back from Leviticus what they're supposed to do in the tent of meeting. So things set. Everything's ready. We're getting ready to get on the move. God now in the next section is going to say, here are some ways that you're going to maintain the purity of this thing that we have, this, this miniature city almost of God's holiness. And so there's going to be a ritual for, uh, well, there's going to be directions for preserving the holiness. Then there's going to be this weird ritual. And it's weird. And you're going to read it and go, that's weird. And if you read it on some translations, you may go, that's weird and it's sexist. If you read it in other translations, you may go, oh, that's weird, but it's actually pretty kind of progressive for the day. It all depends on the baggage you bring to the text. So what I'm going to try to do next week is we're going to look at this ritual, we're going to unpack it, show you what it would have meant to them, because that's kind of what matters and then maybe draw some conclusions about what it means today. But the main point now of the last two chapters is the camps are organized, the army is ready to move, everybody has their jobs, their role, their duty. God has brought order out of chaos and he has called people to do very specific things. The Merarites, the Gershonites, the Kohathites, they don't get a lot of fanfare in the Bible. You know, they don't get hymns written about them. Even Levites in general get some acknowledgement every now and then in a hymn or a Christian poem or something. Priests are all over the place in terms of imagery and praise that they get because they're up front. They're the visible ones. But there were guys 30 to 50 years old whose entire job was carrying an end of a pole. And if they had looked at it as I am carrying the end of a pole, 
It wouldn't have been that glamorous. Their motivation for doing it would not have been that great. But on the other end of that pole was the Ark of God. It was the center of the reactor of the thing that powered God's people. So looked at it in that light, that job, even though it's unheralded, it's, it's, you know, they don't get any limelight, they don't get any fame, they don't get book deals, they don't get any of the success that celebrity, superstar Christians get, but they were essential. And God knew their name. And He numbered You're called to do something for the Lord, which may not be as super glamorous as being a celebrity mega pastor. Um, there's a purpose, there's a role, and, and it's essential, even if it's mundane. So with that being said, some of you will go back to your mundane jobs and spreadsheets and TPS reports and all the other stuff that you think cannot possibly honor God, but know that if you're doing it for His glory, it can honor Him, and we'll see you next week. Bye.